welcome to episode 265 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. We are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Jesse, my man, how you doing? Hey, brother. What's going on? I mean, I'm I'm ramped up here, man. I'm jazzed up for this episode. I know you are. So we, we, we're calling a little bit of an audible. We're just going to get started. We're going to skip over affirmations and denials. So uh, for those of you who are new to the Reformed Brotherhood, one of our favorite things to do is to dismantle the arguments for the eternal functional subordination of the Son or the eternal relations of authority and submission or whatever other creative acronym uh, this group can come up with. And we are kind of neck deep in a series on uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. And so last week we talked about the eternal processions, which is the doctrine that uh, derives from scripture and, and we use to discuss how the persons of the Trinity, irrespective of uh, anything outside of the Godhead and outside of God, are related to each other. And so we have that discussion. We don't talk about their the the parts they play or the roles they take in the economy of redemption. We don't talk about um, aspects of their person that uh, relate to their work. We're strictly talking about how it is that we distinguish the persons from each other in relation to each other. And um, we kind of mentioned we were going to talk about the missions this week, which is the doctrine that teaches us about the coming of the Son and the coming of the Spirit into the world as they were sent by the Father in the case of the Son, and as uh, the Spirit was sent in the case of the Son, or uh, the Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son. Well, uh, I've uh, sort of, as I've been preparing for these um, episodes, I've been making sort of, I don't know if you want to call them memes, I don't know, quote pictures, something like that, and sharing them to the Reformed Brotherhood webpage uh, or to the Reformed Brotherhood Twitter account and Facebook accounts. Uh, and they're basically like a picture of, an, of a prominent EFS advocate and a quote that demonstrates why we object to their theology. Uh, I actually think in a lot of these cases, these are, are instances where the true implications of their theology have slipped past their notice. Uh, so, for example, when Doug Wilson uh, says that the father is obedience and the son is or the father is authority and the son is obedience, uh, it seems to have slipped past him that those are two different isnesses or two different usias or natures. Uh, so the, the true implications of his theology seem to have come out in his attempt to further explain it. And one of the figures that I put some quotes up of was Owen Strahan, who is uh, a professor. I'm going to get the name wrong. Grace Baptist Theological Seminary, maybe. It's in Arkansas. Uh, looks to be a decent seminary. I don't have any major objections with the seminary, uh, but he's a professor there. And I put a couple quotes up. And one of his most recent articles, which I actually haven't read yet except to skim, was a response to somebody who shared one of those images. Um, and so he, he put that out there. He recently published an episode of his podcast, which is called the antithesis. And on November 12th, which was just yesterday, he published an episode called the biblical Godhead. And as I was listening to this episode, I pulled out a number of quotes that are deeply, deeply problematic. And I think, uh, again, really reveal the implications of uh, of Dr. Strahan's theology 
kind of busting through. So kind of like the Kool-Aid man. So what happens is a person, you know, they, they know certain propositions that they know they're kind of supposed to affirm and they probably genuinely affirm them. So to be fair, Dr. Strahan articulates that he believes the theology of the Nicene Creed. I believe, I could be wrong on this, but I believe I've seen him say that he affirms that there's one will in the Trinity. He, in this episode, explicitly articulates that he believes the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are of exactly the same single numerical nature. So he knows to say all of these things, and I think, I think to be charitable, I think he genuinely believes these things. But the entailments of his theology, this ERAS theology, this ERAS, eternal relations of submission authority or authority and submission, the entailments of these lead him to places that he himself probably doesn't actually want to go. And so as he articulates and fleshes out and and tries to sort of defend and justify and explain his theology, we're starting to get glimpses of these little spots where that theology, the, the entailments of those theology are kind of catching him uh, in the back. They're, they're circling around, they're hitting him again. Uh, we saw this with uh, Wayne Grudem. He had this weird convoluted qu- quote where he's talking about the will of God, willing that the Father wills to send the Son and willing that the Son wills to send the or be sent by the Father. In one place he says that the Father and the Son have different or, or have a will that is not the same. And those are entailments of his position, which it breaks down into a form of polytheism. So we wanted to uh, we wanted to kind of interrupt our normally scheduled programming, although it seems like EFS stuff is our normally scheduled programming, but we wanted to kind of interrupt that to talk about this episode because it is so timely and it is so so clear in this episode what is going on with Owen Strahan's theology. Hey everyone, Future Tony here. Just wanted to drop in and give you a quick update. So Jesse and I recorded this episode on Saturday, November 13th. And uh, shortly after uh, we recorded this, the next day, I received an email from Dr. Owen Strahan following up on my request for him to come into the show and talk about this, which you are about to hear me talk about. And he declined the invitation, uh, citing time constraints on his schedule. So in the next little bit of audio here, I'm going to be asking you to uh, bombard his Twitter account, asking him to come on the show. Please do not do that. Uh, we don't want to be rude, and he has made clear that he's not interested in joining the Brotherhood. So even though I'm going to ask you uh, back on the 13th of November, it's now the 18th of November, and I'm correcting that. All right. We do have some exciting stuff. There was a little bit of an interaction with me and him over the weekend on Twitter, uh, some things to talk about. So you'll be hearing about that on the show next week. So full disclosure, I emailed uh, the seminary that Owen teaches at this morning and asked to do a discussion with him about this. So I'm, I'm very interested in asking him these questions directly. It is not my desire to misrepresent him or to uh, malign him or to chastise him unnecessarily. I want to make sure I'm understanding it. Unfortunately, he hasn't written like a comprehensive systematic theology of this stuff. So you kind of have to piece together his views from blog articles and things like that. Um, so hopefully he will respond and be willing to come on the show to discuss it. And if you wanted to, I don't have his Twitter handle here, but if you're a listener and would like to hear that, then you should tell him that you should go to Twitter or to Facebook and you should comment on his Facebook feeds and Twitter 
that he should come on the Reformed Brotherhood to have a conversation about this. It's not intended to be an ambush. I do have some specific questions that I would like to ask him and hear his explanation of uh, with the goal of understanding what he has to say better. If it's truly not a heretical teaching or an errant teaching, then I want to give him an opportunity to articulate that under a little bit of cross-examination and pressing some of the points that I'm trying to call out. So if you uh, if you feel so inclined, let him know that. And the other thing I want to say before we really dive into this material is uh, if you go back to an episode that Jesse and I recorded, uh, we recorded basically an episode talking about what 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 it means to be a heretic and what is heresy. And one of the things that I feel strongly about and Jesse feels strongly about is that you uh, you have to have a certain there's a certain process for someone to be formally declared a heretic. It's not this kind of thing that an average everyday Christian should be doing. So, so even though I think that some of the entailments of Dr. Strahan's theology or William Lane Craig or Bruce Ware or whoever, even though I think the entailments of those theology and in some cases the explicit statements of some of these theologies are heretical teaching, I, in my person as a podcast host, is, I, podcast host isn't an office of the church. Uh, so I, in my my podcast host role don't have the authority to declare any of these men to be heretics. Um, and I hope that they're not. That's something that the church does, that church officers do in, in, um, in lawfully assembled courts of the church, not something that podcast hosts and um, bloggers and people on, on Facebook should be engaging in. So I don't think that Owen is a heretic. I don't think that he is condemned to hell. I, I don't think any of those things. Uh, I'm hopeful that the heretical entailments of his theology are a happy accident in that they're happy in that he doesn't actually hold those, that the explicit statements he holds uh, are the real things he believes. And these are kind of accidental things that have crept in a happy inconsistency. So all of that said, I've pulled a few quotes from this podcast. I use some transcription software to try to get as accurate to the quotes as I could. So if I miss a few of them, please forgive me. And I have cut out some, um, perseverating on the quotes and tried to distill some of them down. I haven't intentionally uh, pulled anything out of the immediate context that would change the meaning. So if I've made a mistake there, then again, please have grace for that. But before we get started, Jesse, you you didn't know this uh, episode was coming until about 20 minutes ago when you logged on to our, our meeting here. So do you have any thoughts about our endeavor today before we get started? I do. I know nothing. I have <laughs> neither read nor listened to that particular episode. So I say to you, keep it going. All right. So the first the first kind of quote I want to pull out, and there, there's a reason I'm doing this. This doesn't have as much of a direct, um, a direct impact on the theology here, but I want to pull this out because one of the things that uh, even in this episode is prominent among EFS folks is this idea that gets put forward that because they say that they are, they, they hold to the Nicene Creed, they say that they believe there's one essence in God, they say there's only one will in God, because they explicitly say that, that it is somehow unfair or uncharitable for us to tease out entailments of their theology, that contradicts that. Um, Owen says, basically says as much in this episode in various ways. It's, it's even more common for people who are, uh, 
oftentimes unaware of some of these issues, but are trying to defend these figures against crit- criticism. They'll point at these uh, these statements and say, no, no, see right here, he, he says he's not an Aryan. And I go, well, Arius also didn't say he was an Aryan. So, so just because a, a person who's teaching something false says that it's not false doesn't mean that it is in fact not false. And so Owen actually starts his episode with this quote, um, I don't have the timestamps. This one's pretty early on. It's uh, He says, there's nothing lacking. He's talking about the scriptures. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing left out. There's nothing we need to supplement scripture with to lead a Christian life, to have sound Christian doctrine as our baseline. You don't go begging in any other houses, in any other cities on this world for the doctrine that the word of God lacks, the truth the word of God lacks that God is not giving you for your life in theology. It is all there in the sacred text. Perhaps to this point, this sounds rather uncontroversial and even blasé to some of you. But today we are all encouraged, at least in evangelical theological academic circles, to compromise what I've just been saying. Let me sharpen the point. We are encouraged today in the evangelical academy toward a kind of trentless and popeless Catholicism. We are encouraged today toward a kind of trentless council of trentless and popeless no pope Catholicism. According to some today in the evangelical academy, we are supposed to see scripture as the fountainhead of our faith, but then the creeds and confessions shape and even develop our theology, our faith. And then you can insert a little dot, 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 because there's some stuff that I think was it was useful in the context, but I don't think it helps us here in terms of understanding what he's saying. He says, quote, We revere creeds and confessions. We use and learn from them in profound ways. We give thanks for them, but we never see creeds and confessions as scripture. They're not akin to scripture. They're not at scripture's level. They're not just below scripture. They are of a different essence, if you will, than scripture. Scripture alone is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16 alone, has that identity about it. Nothing else does in terms of documents, books, and sources in the world of men. And so what I want to call out here, what I'm trying to point out here, nobody that he's critiquing would say, yes, creeds and confessions are just below Scripture in terms of authority. No one would say they're of the same essence, but on a different degree. No one would say and explicitly affirm any of the things that he is saying he's being critical of in this. So if you can see what Owen is doing is he's taking arguments that he's read, I think incorrectly, but what he's doing is he's teasing out what he sees to be entailments of those arguments. And then he's criticizing the, the people who hold those arguments based on their entailments, which is precisely what the EFS crowd, uh, like I said, more commonly the kind of hoi polloi everyday person on Facebook who's arguing in on behalf of these guys, but them too, he's doing exactly what they say we can't do. So when I go and, and I pull these quotes out here, and this has happened to me several times over the last couple of days, when I pull these quotes out and I say, see right here where Owen in, in Grand Design on page 93 roots the identity of the father in the economic activity of sending the son into the world. That's a form of process theology because his identity as the father is dependent on uh, the economic activity of sending the son. When I say that, what I'm doing, I'm not saying Owen is explicitly a process theology and claims that identity for himself. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's an entailment embedded in that in that sentence that, if true, means that he holds a theology that is substantially the same as process theology in that area. 
right? So, so I'm pulling this out here because Owen is doing it. So no longer can anyone say it is not fair or it's not charitable or it's not right to pull out an entailment of a statement and then criticize a person on behalf of that statement. That's exactly what Owen Strahan did in the beginning of his podcast episode. It's a very normal thing to do, but for some reason it gets kind of pulled out and said like, well, this isn't charitable. You should just take them on the basis of their explicit statements. Nobody actually does that. And Owen himself does does the opposite here. So I wanted to set the groundwork for this episode with that in mind, that it is just fine to pull out the entailments of a person's argument and their expressed words and to, uh, as best you can, accurately represent in logical argumentation why those entailments come to the conclusion they do. So that's where we're going. We've got we've got a couple more quotes here that are are rather lengthy, but there's a couple significant things that I think reveal some of these entailments in the ERAS position that I've all we've always kind of said we're there, but this is the most explicit kind of undeniable version of it that I've seen in a really, really long time. So I wanted to jump on this because this episode is kind of making a lot of buzz and going around around the internet. And I think people need to see the flip side of this argument and kind of read these statements for what they actually entail and say. Yeah, you're on a roll. Keep it going. <laughs> Jesse is like, I know, I'm not going to talk today because it's it's an ERAS episode. Yeah, this is, this is all you, brother. Lead us on. So the, the next quote, um, Strahan is, I think, making a number of errors in how he um, articulates what it is that his critics are doing. So he goes into this discussion about the covenant of redemption and you know what, how some people root the obedience of the son in the covenant of redemption and some people root it outside of the covenant of redemption. He seems to be using this, the term covenant of redemption to sort of represent all of the economic activity of God. So he, he starts out and he says here, there's a disagreement among evangelical theologians about how exactly to locate sending and giving of the son by the father. I think that's a valid debate. I think there are sound and godly theologians on different sides of the covenant of redemption debate. I am no, I in no way am convinced that I must hold the covenant of redemption. In fact, I think the case has been advanced by some, including J.V. Fesco, is actually exegetically quite thin. Fesco is a gifted theologian, let that be said, but I've read his book on the covenant of redemption and came away quite unconvinced by his case. Some, however, find that case compelling. I don't think there is a covenant of redemption in Scripture. Uh, and then I think he he says a little bit about some other things, and then he says this. The Son makes clear over and over again that he is not doing his own will. He's doing the Father's will. In fact, he repeatedly differentiates between his will and his Father's will. Here again, there's another lively and important discussion over the divine will, divine willing, divine willers. We want to have that discussion. We want students to read up on it and our seminaries to think it through and search it out according to the scriptures and read good books about it on different sides. That's a valid conversation to have. Let's simply note that in terms of the son's own confession, he is not here to execute a generic Trinitarian will, a generic divine will. He is here to do the father's will. That's his food. He's here to accomplish the Father's work, not his own work. He hasn't sent himself. The Spirit hasn't sent him. The Father has sent him. The Father has sent him before the creation of earth. This has been on purpose. 
that is, and then in actual space and time, the Father sent him into the earth. This is the plan made before the foundation of the earth. This is the eternal covenant of salvation. This, in other words, the work that culminates in the new covenant. The new covenant is cut before all time, before the creation of the world. That's what I believe in view is in view here. Uh, view there in the book of Hebrews, the eternal covenant of salvation. The Son has come to do the Father's will. The Father's will has primacy. You won't often hear much treatment of the Father's will. You'll usually hear discussion in evangelical academic theology about the divine will, the one will. That's a valid conversation to have, and I'm not going to get into that today. I'm just going to point out that what the New Testament emphasizes over and over and over again is not the Son's will or the Spirit's will, but the Father's will. And so this, this quote, this one, I, I literally, I was, I was working on some other stuff at work while I was listening to this, and I literally sat up, run it back, and slowed it down to 1x speed because I wanted to make sure I knew exactly what he was saying here. And so there's a little bit of, the reason I say there's some confusion, I think, in Owen's articulation is because he says one thing about the covenant of redemption. He says he doesn't think there's a covenant of redemption. And then he basically goes on to describe the covenant of redemption and say that that's what's going on in Hebrews. So there's some differentiation there that he's making. Uh, And I think he's talking about uh, where Hebrews says that the son learned obedience by suffering. I, I might be wrong on that, but because of something he says later on, I think that's what he has in view here. But here's what he says. I'm just going to read this last part. He says, I'm just going to point out that what the New Testament emphasizes over and over and over again is not the Son's will or the Spirit's will, but the Father's will. And so one of the things that's been super frustrating, I think, in this discussion debate is that there seems to be, and this is where it comes into the the missions, processions discussion. So this, this fits nicely with kind of where we're at in the series, is there seems to be this collapsing of the economic activity of God in, in some of it, some of it in a sense occurs in eternity past, right? The covenant of redemption is an economic activity that occurs before creation. So, so therefore occurs in the absence of time. Uh, what that means, how that functions, we, we don't know, but it, it's an economic activity that doesn't have a specific temporal reference. What, what this position is doing is it's taking the missions, the, the economic activity of the persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit, it's taking the economic activity of the persons, and it's merging it with the, um, with the eternal ad intra activity or operations of the persons. And so there's this confusion that that's happening that's causing them to make statements like this that just don't really work. So, so... Orthodox, historically Orthodox Reformed theologians have always understood that in the economic activity of the Godhead, ad extra, that uh, especially in the the incarnation, when there actually is two distinct wills, there's the human will of the Son, and then there's the divine will, which is shared by the Father, Son, and Spirit. There's these two wills in play that we have to sort of grapple with. So when, when Christ says that it's, you know, the that his food is to do the will of the father or in John 638, where he says, you know, not, uh, you know, uh, there's some in John 638 or in the garden of Gethsemane when he says, not my will, but your will be done. All these different instances where there's this contrast between the father's will and the son's will. Those texts are all talking about the contrast of the God man in his office as mediator incarnated with a second will 
contrasted to the divine will, which is the Father is in Scripture is is it terminates on uh, the Father, and we'll talk about that in a couple episodes when we talk about it in separate operations. But we talk about the Father's will in a sort of shorthand way to say the will that is shared by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the divine will, which is the Father's will, is also the Son's and Spirit's will. But in in the Scripture, because we're kind of setting two persons, uh, uh, not opposed, but next to each other to contrast them, the, the Father is representing God in all of God, and then the Son as the perfect second Adam human mediator is representing humanity in these texts, not in a symbolic way, but in a, like a real literal way. The Son is the human, and the Father is is God, and so when the Son differentiates his will or distinguishes will or even contrasts his will to the Father's, we're talking about that human will. But if you look at that last quote, here's where, where it goes sideways is he's talking about the the father's will and the son's will in contrast to each other. So we could we could read this charitably and say he understands everything I just said and he's talking about the divine will contrasted to the the son's human will. But when we get to this last quote, I'm going to read it again. I'm just going to point out that what the New Testament emphasizes over and over and over again is not the son's will or the spirit's will, but the father's will. So he's he's either contrasting the human will of the son and then the father's divine will, but also the son's divine will. And so in this one quote, he actually kind of unwittingly reveals this understanding that there is a plurality of wills in the Godhead. There's the father's will, which is represented and emphasized over and over and over again in the New Testament. And then there's the son's will, and the Spirit's will, which is not emphasized over and over and over again in the New Testament. So if he really thinks that this is, you know, somehow still one will, there needs to be an explanation for how that works. There needs to be a legitimate explanation for why we can talk about the Father's will and characterize a description of the Father's will in one way, and then the Spirit and Son's divine wills, or divine will, how we can emphasize those things in a different way and contrast them to each other and not have some sort of concept of a plurality of wills. It's just, this is this is the entailments of the eternal submission and authority uh, coming out in in kind of ad hoc speech. Most of the time when this is a published thing, these kinds of things get teased out a little bit more. But you, we saw in the case of Wayne Grudem, they still slip through. They still have this language that refers to ways that on, the sentence only makes sense in the context of a plurality of wills. Right on. Oh, internet. I know. So silly I know. in your lack of accountability and filtering. Yes. I mean, even even when we're talking about published material like a, a published book, these entailments are going to come out. We are not perfect. We are not inspired. We're not infallible. And so our theology is never going to be perfectly consistent. And this kind of a... Um, this kind of a situation is one that we need to look at because now what we have is we have this evidence kind of right on the face of it that there is being presented to us a theology that not only has, but depends on a plurality of wills. Ever since I got my hands on this kind of stuff, uh, it, was an, it was an article in the Evangelical Theological Society. I remember exactly where I was sitting when I read it, and I actually set the book down and kind of step back because before that I had sort of sort of been a a unknowing defender 
of the, um, this is so bad that my voice just left me, and sort of an unwitting defender of eternal functional subordination because I just didn't really see the implications of it. And it was, an, it was an article by Glenn Butner Jr., who also wrote a fabulous book called The Son Who Learned Obedience about the EFS position. And he brought out this, this distinction that in order for there to be this submission and authority that's going on in the Godhead, there has to be a plurality of wills. Um, this is why Kyle Clonch, who was Bruce Ware's um, uh, doctoral student at the time, they published a book that was edited by Bruce Ware. And in his book, there was an article by Kyle Clonch that was um, presumably read by Bruce Ware that said that the EFS position requires a plurality of wills. So what I, what I would like to ask Dr. Strahan is how does this theology line up with the idea that there is only one will. How can we say that the New Testament emphasizes that it is the Father's will and not and emphasize sort of by negation, emphasize that it is not the Son's or the Spirit's will? Because that's that's what we see when we read the words with their plain meaning and sort of plain theological sensibilities about it. And this is a common thing. You know, we've, this question has been asked to Wayne Grudem. It's been asked to Bruce Ware. There's kind of a lot of hand-waving of, well, you know, like there could be different expressions of God's will. Okay, I guess, I suppose. Um, the other thing that we have to account for, and this is important because I do see a lot of theologians who their defense against any sort of whiff of a plurality of wills is to sort of point to the incarnation and say the only explanation is when when Christ has a second will. The problem is that the Old Testament also seems to have, prior to the incarnation, some language that seems to talk about a plurality of wills in the economic activity of the Trinity. And so the, the sending language is there. Like in Ezekiel, uh, we talked about it, how like there's this image of a man who looks like bronze from the waist up and he's sent into the city or maybe it's Amos or one of the other prophets, but he's sent in the city to mark off those who would be saved. Well, he's sent there, there's God is giving him an instruction and that instruction is being obeyed. So we have to understand that even prior to the incarnation, we still have these glimpses of God's working in the economy of salvation that is revealed to us under language that implies a plurality of wills. But these are these are anthropomorphic expressions. Just like the the Bible says that God has feathers or an arm or that he snorts like a bull when he's mad, these 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 ways of talking in the Old Testament prior to the incarnation, even in eternity past, right? In the economy, the covenant of redemption, even if we want to conceptualize that as a traditional covenant where the father kind of gives the son a kingdom based on whether or not he'll fulfill a task and the son receives that and swears obedience to it. I don't think that's the best way to articulate the covenant of redemption. But even if we do that, that still is accommodated speech to our, our frail faculties, so we have to be able to talk about this and understand that when we're talking about anything having to do with the economy of redemption, the, the outward workings of the Trinity toward creation outside of the Trinity, all of that language is accommodated language. So some of it is going to seem to imply that there is this disparity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Some of it is going to imply that there is this uh, asymmetry in the authority structure of the Trinity. But we've, we confess that that's not a realistic possibility because of what the Bible says 
in other places about the doctrine of the Trinity. We confess that the, the Father, Son, and Spirit are utterly equal in power and glory. But how could that be the case if the Son is subservient to the Father, then he's automatically not equal in power or glory, because he doesn't have the power or authority to command the Father, but the Father has the power and authority to command the Son. Um, so I, I think this is a this is a really uh, sort of... I don't know what word to use. It's a, it's kind of a condemning passage for Strahan because it is so clear that he's conceptualizing uh, the Trinity in a way that has this plurality of, of wills. And it, this weird thing where he's denying the, the, the covenant of redemption and he calls the eternal covenant of salvation. Well, he's talking about that as though this eternal covenant of salvation is everything in God, that it, that it is, it goes all the way back into prior to creation, it goes all the way back into eternity past, that this economic reality of the Father sending the Son is actually a function of the internal workings of the Trinity, that the Father somehow sends the Son irrespective of creation. And the other question I would need to ask then is, sends him where? Or gives him a command, uh, what command to do what? Like, does he command him to be the son? Does he command him to be God? Does he command him to uh, together process the spirit? Like, what's the command apart from any econ uh, economic considerations in the Trinity? You're doing great, brother. Let me <laughs> verbally let me verbally rub your shoulders in the corner of the ring while you take a breath. Yes, and you get ready for the additional rounds because I know you got more to say. I know that can't be it. What are the other quotes that you want to bring forward? So I've got just one more and. This is, again, demonstrating this weird propensity to collapse what God does outwardly and who God is inwardly. Now, we, we, we will get to next week how the, the, missions, are not, um, the missions are not arbitrary. So the, the Father uh, sends the Son as the mediator— not because the divine persons like drew straws in eternity past somehow. It's not as though the spirit could have come and become incarnated and, and died for the sins of the world or the father, you know, come in and be the, the spirit of holiness that unites us to the son. Like that's not, that's not what we believe. And there is some danger if we lose the eternal processions that we lose that, but that's a single direction arrow. The, the processions inform and, and determine which persons of the Trinity were fitting to engage in which economic activities. The son as the middle person was fitting for him to be the mediator. Because it's from the father through the son that the spirit proceeds in the internal workings of the Trinity, the spirit was the proper one to be sent by both the Father and the Son into the world to accomplish and to apply the work of the Son. So we're not saying that the the eternal processions uh, somehow are totally disconnected from the temporal missions of the Trinity. But what the EFS position does is it makes that arrow two-directional. So not only do the uh, eternal processions determine and uh, inform the temporal missions, but the temporal missions actually inform and determine the eternal processions. And we saw that most explicitly uh, in a quote from Grand Design, where, where Strahan specifically says that the son, or the father is the father because he sends the son, and the son is the son because he is sent by the father. So that that eternal mission or that temporal mission is what makes the father the father. 
in in that quote, at least in the entailments of that quote. Now, I don't think that I don't think that Owen actually believes that. I don't think he actually thinks that's the case, but that's what he says in that quote. And there isn't any there isn't really any more context to that quote that that little snippet is kind of throwaway statement in the middle of a, a more or less unrelated section of the book. But here in this episode, he's talking about um, he, he basically is trying to ground his view that the son is eternally obedient to the father in the fact that the son in the incarnation is obedient to the father. And so, again, I've cut out some of the intervening stuff. Um, it's a podcast. Owen perseverates and reiterates, and that's fine and normal. But in terms of the quote, I cut some of that repetition and looping out for the sake of brevity here. He says, okay, here's the thing. The son is immutable. If the son doesn't change and his person is always the divine son, wouldn't it be the case that scripture is teaching us in the period when the son is incarnate, truly God, truly human, that he is the same son in eternity past? This is my belief. This almost feels simplistic today. Like, you see the Son revealed in the Scripture as the Son in eternity past, in the Son, and and in eternity future. But it's no revolutionary belief. It's the most common sense, straightforward conception of the Son that I know of for you and me to see the Son of God as having the same character, that the New Testament that the New Testament in terms of his life and ministry presents him as having not only in that period, but before all time. This is because brothers and sisters, I'll give my view here. This is because the Bible is teaching us the Trinity. The New Testament in particular is giving us the material about the Godhead that we need. It is not only giving us the material about the Godhead that obtains for a certain period. We are learning about the eternal father the eternal son and the eternal spirit in particular in the new Testament. So what is true of the son in the incarnation is true of the son before the incarnation. And so he's using this idea that what we see in the new Testament of the God man of, of Christ in his incarnate state, what we see of him in the new Testament informs us about the son in eternity past. And now there's a certain, uh, there's a certain element of that. That is true, right? We see that Christ as the God man is the perfect spotless lamb that he's anointed, uh, that he's given the spirit without measure. All of these things are true in the new Testament. And they do tell us something about some of the internal workings in the uh, old Testament or in, in the eternity past. But this last phrase is the one that that I, I like kind of spit out my water. He says, so what is true of the son in the incarnation is true of the son before the incarnation. And this is just manifestly false, right? The, the son before the incarnation did not have a body. The son before the incarnation did not have limitations in terms of time and space. The son before the incarnation did not have a mother. He did not have blood or fingernails, and he did not have things like human emotions and weaknesses and limitations. And so we, when we look at this, this is the, the, the quote that I was saying, I think when he talks about this eternal covenant, I think he's kind of pulling into this idea that the son learned obedience by suffering. And, and so he's saying that because we can say that the son in the incarnation is obedient to the father, that therefore we must also say that the son in eternity past was obedient to the father as a function of who he is as the son. 
And the problem with this is just that it's not the case. The New Testament explicitly says that the son learned obedience by suffering. So are we to believe here with what Dr. Strahan is saying that the son learned obedience in suffering in some sort of eternal suffering, some sort of eternal lesson that he was learning by, by suffering that he learned to be eternally obedient. I mean, it it takes almost no pressure at all to, to point out and cause this theology to just collapse in on itself. We, We make this, you know, Owen makes this statement that the son is what the son is in the incarnation. He is in eternity past, but 1500 years of Christological consensus after the Council of of Chalcedon would say, no, 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 no. Like he took on a human nature. He took on a human nature because he took on certain things, limitations, abilities, things that he took on that were required for him to redeem humanity. If everything he was in the incarnation, he already was in his, in eternity past, then the incarnation is totally unnecessary and meaningless. The whole point of the incarnation, you can look at Athanasius, you can look at Anselm, Augustine reflects on this, you can look at Aquinas, Calvin, I mean, all across the board in the Orthodox Christological tradition, all across the board, there's an understanding that although Christ became something new in the incarnation, he never ceased to be what he was. Nothing about his divine person, nothing about his divine nature changed in the incarnation. He related to himself a new human nature, and with that, united in his hypostasis, took on new properties and attributes. That does not mean that his divine hypostasis became somehow not a divine hypostasis. So so this is another one of those areas where Owen is trying to justify his theology. He's trying to explain why it is that he looks at the Bible and sees what he sees and argues what he argues, but he has to sort of collapse the economy of salvation into eternity past. He has to collapse the uniqueness of the incarnation, the things that Christ took on in the incarnation, a human will, a human soul, a human mind, a human body, right? Human weaknesses and limitations and frailties. He had to learn who he was by studying the scripture illuminated and empowered by the Holy Spirit. All of these things were not true of the son in eternity past. And not all of those things are sort of uh, just sort of like crass accidental attributes, right? I could see him saying this thing like, well, the moral character, the, the spiritual character of the son is identical prior to the incarnation as it is after the incarnation. Okay, maybe I could see if that was the argument being made. But the reality is that there are human, moral, and spiritual characteristics and attributes that the Son takes on that were not true of him prior to becoming incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's just They just were not true. And obedience is precisely one of those things that he takes on. For us men and our salvation, he came down, became incarnate, and born of the Virgin Mary. Right. So if we say that and we confirm, confess that and we affirm that, then we also have to say everything that comes along with that. Right. The Westminster Confession is very clear that part of what the purpose of the incarnation was, was so that the son could be obedient on our behalf. Well, if he was already obedient, then I guess maybe you could say he became human so that he could be that divine obedience on our behalf. But that's not what the scriptures teach. It teaches that he became a man. He put himself under the law. 
He was born of a woman born under the law, not because out of, of any internal obligation to the law. He was not descended of Adam by ordinary generation, but because in order to serve our place, in order to die in our place for our sins, and in order to fulfill the law on our behalf, he had to be able to become the obedient human representative that he could not have been in eternity past. So precisely at this point of obedience, precisely at that point is what is re- what the incarnation requires, is that he takes on an ability and a mandate to be obedient that he did not have in eternity past. If we lose that, we lose the active obedience of Christ, we lose double imputation, you might as well just sign up for federal vision because it's all over at that point. There's no more active obedience. It's, it's an entirely inactive obedience in that it was an always active obedience. So, so there's, there's things that the son takes on in, in the incarnation that if Owen's statement here, and as I said, I don't actually think he believes this. I don't actually think that he thinks that the son had, had blood vessels in eternity past. I don't think he actually thinks that the son, uh, had to be obedient to the, to the Virgin Mary in eternity past, right? He's talking about becoming popeless Roman Catholics, well, the Roman Catholics think that the son now has to be obedient to Mary because he was obedient to her on earth. So he's got these entailments that he doesn't seem to understand, and I'm sure he would reject. But nevertheless, just like I opened this episode, he acknowledges and engages in this behavior of of bringing an argument to its conclusion, to its entailments, criticizing those entailments, and using that to then roll back and disprove the foundational things that led to those entailments. That's exactly what we're doing. Owen Strahan has shown his cards here inadvertently. He doesn't even know what his cards are, and he's accidentally thrown them down on the table here. And one of those cards is a plurality of wills in the Godhead. And another one of those cards is this idea that the eternal mission or the eternal processions, the eternal ad intra relations are determined by economic realities. It's right in the name of his theology. The eternal relations of what? Authority and submission. Well, right there, we just talked about it. Authority and submission can only take place in relation to the economic activities of the sun and the spirit. That's the only time that it's intelligible. It's the only time that we really see it in scripture where it's explicitly stated or implicitly stated that there is this kind of uh, submission or hierarchy structure. All of that is related to creation. All of that's related to the external operations of the Trinity. He has to take those and make them eternal. He takes the temporal relations of authority and submission, and he forces them to become the eternal relations of authority and submission. And all of the things I just pointed out are side effects of that. And this is what what we constantly say on this show. Theology makes a difference. Theology matters. If you get this wrong, if you get the, the... directionality between the uh, relationship between the processions and the missions wrong, then you screw up your whole doctrine of the Trinity. If you base your doctrine of God on some sort of misguided sense that uh, the people who are critical of you are inappropriately beholden to platonic philosophy instead of getting their theology from the scripture, then you end up rejecting the theology because of its source, not because of because of your perceived perception of its source, not because of actual biblical argumentation. And this is where this is where I'll I'll kind of stop my tirade 
for now is the way that I know that he's doing this, the way that I know that he is talking about the economic things is the rest of this episode after this statement, more or less, is him going through certain biblical passages that he believes demonstrates the eternal uh, relation of authority and submission. And most of them are taken from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so he's taking this principle that what he sees in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as the second Adam, as the mediator, as the God-man, what he sees of that, he can just drag and drop back it into, etern- into eternity. So this principle that what, the, what is true of the Son in the Incarnation is true of the Son before the Incarnation, he's using that to pull all of these, all of these things that we learn about the second Adam's ministry, about his life, about what it means to be truly human, what it means to be the image of God, what it means to live in accordance with God's righteous requirements, all of that stuff, he's pulling it back into eternity past. So the question is, what law was the son obedient to in eternity past? The whole point of the second Adam is that he's obedient to God's law. What law was it in eternity past that he was obedient to? Is the father somehow not obedient to the law of God? All of these questions flow out of the way that he is executing this theological maneuver. And I I don't know, I've never talked to Owen Strahan. I would like the opportunity to ask some of these questions of him. I'd like to to do it on the record so it's right out there for all of us to see. He's welcome if he comes on the show to do some cross-examination of my view. I'm I'm more than happy to, to do that and to play fair and to go both directions on that. But these are things that we have, these are hard questions that we need answers to if uh, the eternal functional subordination, eternal relations of authority and submission, all these different e- e, uh, eternal subordination theologies, if, if all of these things are true, then not only do we just need to like tweak these one, these sort of these auxiliary things that they think they're tweaking, right? They think that turning eternal begottenness into eternal obedience is just a small tweak, but we really are reinventing the entire system and we have to reinvent the entire system because of the very kinds of entailments and problems that I'm pointing out today. All right. So take us home. I don't know if I can, man. I'm pretty, pretty beat after that. (laughs) I mean, there's, there's, I'll say there's not much more to say, but there's always more to say on this. There's not much more to say for today's episode. It's actually, ironically, a little bit of a shorter one. But we need to think critically about this stuff. I had an interaction with someone today, and I'll admit maybe I was a little more spicy than I should have been. That's fine. I can say that. But over the course of this conversation, one of the things that this person said was basically something like the fact that you think you have a superior understanding of Owen Strait of the scriptures than Owen Strahan does, a legend and hero of the faith. Okay, first of all, as great as Owen Strahan may be, he 99% of Christians in the world, even Protestants, have no idea who this guy is. I can tell you from from our conversations with Chad Bird and Eric Sorensen, this Trinity debate, this Trinity dust up. Most people outside of the Reformed world haven't got a clue what's going on. So we really have a self-inflated sense of ego in general. If we think that some uh, some doctoral uh, person at a, a small seminary in Arkansas who's written a couple books is necessarily a great hero and legend of the faith. That's the first thing. But the point is, we can't just take a person's word for it. In this case, I think... Sadly, there's a lot of similarities to the way that people respond to Doug Wilson. 
Owen is a competent cultural commentator. Actually, I actually prefer him over Doug Wilson because he's not so vitriolic and inappropriate. And he doesn't have all the other baggage that comes with Doug Wilson in terms of his personal behavior and the way he articulates things. Owen is articulate. He's clearly a sharp guy. He, he does know the scriptures probably better than I do. I mean, I have no problem acknowledging that. I think people look at someone like Owen Strahan and they, they overlook these issues one because they don't understand them and two because they're willing to overlook them because Owen can make a really powerful argument against critical race theory or because he has some insightful things to say about vaccine mandates right those are like the two big things most recently that he's been really engaged in great that's fine he does it's true but but we have to be able to look at a person's theology with a critical lens regardless of who they are unless they're Jesus or it's the writings of the apostles that were inspired by the scriptures and contained in the Old and New Testaments. Uh, unless it's that, then everybody needs to be looked at a critic, uh, with a critical eye. Me, you, my pastor, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, Augustine, you know, all of these people, I would be able to look at and say there are things I disagree with about their theology. There's none of those people that I personally say is 100% right about all of this stuff. Right. That's fine. I'm not 100 percent right in this, all this stuff. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said he, he's pretty confident he's got like 80 percent of his theology right, but he's not sure which 20 percent is wrong. So that's the process that we go through. We look at our theology, we review it, we're critical of it, but we owe it to the world and we owe it to the church. We owe it to ourselves. And we owe it to each other to not just look at our own theology critically, but to look at even the people we consider heroes of the faith, and perhaps especially the people we consider heroes of the faith. We owe it to the the we owe it to the Lord to look at their theology critically and to compare it to the scriptures, to compare it to the faith that was once once handed down uh, to the saints. And yes, to compare it to the patterns of sound words that Paul commands us to hold. We are commanded to have creeds and confessions. They're not scripture. They're not of the same essence. They're not in the same category at all, but we are commanded to have and use them. So I think this is just a good example of if we listen carefully and we use some critical thinking skills and we are just willing to say that an entailment of an argument is still a part of that argument, even if the person doesn't realize it. Most of the time they don't. That's why it's an entailment rather than an explicit statement. An entailment is not as strong of an argument as an explicit statement in a debate, right? That's why it's important to look at them because it shows us a lot of times the sort of like outgrowths of our theology that we aren't, aren't cognitively aware of, we're not conscious of. I'm sure I have entailments in my theology that are bad. I'm sure there are entailments in, in Jesse's theology that are bad. None of us is perfect, but we have to be able to be critical of this stuff because this stuff is really, really important. I'm sure we would all agree that your ability to segue into 50 minutes of talking is exceptional. And also that your use of the number of times of entailment is also above average. So that was great. <laughs> Jesse, thanks. I think that... It, that is the definitive episode on you responding to Owen Strayhand, at least for now. To this to this episode of his podcast, yeah. Right. Well, Jesse, th thanks for sitting here silently for 55 minutes at this point. 
uh, I appreciate that you were willing to sort of take the back seat on this episode because we wanted to keep this timely. So next week we're going to be back with uh, a more, maybe a little bit less impassioned uh, discussion of the divine missions. Uh, unless somehow uh, in between now and then Owen agrees to come on the show, um, which would be amazing. Uh, we should be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming. And don't forget, we've got a contest going. We're giving away Persistent Prayer by Guy Richards, which is uh, provided by PNR. It's part of their little PNR uh, Blessings of the Faith series. You can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformbrotherhood.com slash 265. There's a little module there that you can do a couple of things to get some entries to win, and then we will announce the winners by email to the winner. So I guess that's not really announcing it, but we will notify the winners of their good fortune uh, as soon as we draw that at the end of the month. Right on. That's fantastic. Make sure you get in on that. It's true. Jesse, I need to go drink like a gallon of water. Yeah, you and do. And rest my throat. I'm going to sound like a smoker after this because I'm going to be coughing and hacking and people are going to think I've got coronavirus. But, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.